Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. It is MoneyWeb's weekly podcast where I speak to South Africa's leading investment professionals. And today my guest is JP Fister of 361. JP, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ray. Good to be here. August seems to have been the most destructive month since 2008-2009. We saw the biggest pullback uh, largely driven by what happened in China. How do you manage a fund in, in a month like that? Do you do anything? Do you sit on your hands or do you try to take proactive steps to preserve capital? I think you need to do something, even though you said that most of man's problems is because he can't sit still in a, in a room alone. But uh, when prices move a lot, as they have in, in August, we think our job is to take advantage of that. And we can do that because we are both long-only managers of assets as well as hedge fund managers. So you can short as one way to take advantage of the volatility, or you can sell options to also take advantage of high volatility. And we did a, a bit of both of that during August. Can you elaborate exactly what you did? So, um, for instance, in some of our long-only funds, we uh, bought the XIV, which is an inverse of the VIX, the volatility index in the US. That is taking a view that volatility can't stay high for an extended period. We um, wrote a lot of options on single stocks where we uh, once again sold volatility. And then on a more stock-specific basis, uh, which is also uh, more uh, valid for the long-only funds that we manage, we were short commodities for quite a long time. So in our hedge funds, we covered some of those shorts. And in the long-only funds, we continued to avoid uh, commodity companies in general. But we did find one or two specific opportunities. And I'll, I'll mention a name, uh, Aquarius Platinum, where when everything gets sold off, quite often uh, some shares get sold off for the wrong reasons. And um, there were opportunities like Aquarius where we could buy into the share and the share actually performed well in our portfolios, notwithstanding the general negative uh, movement in commodity markets. The market moved down in, in dollar terms around 8% in August. Uh, did you uh, beat that performance? Thank goodness we did. So in our long-only funds, we were down just over 2%. Uh, but in our hedge funds, we were down roughly a half a percent for August. Um, so we are content with that performance, I would say. Uh, being in the hedge fund environment, investors always want to see a positive month. But um, I think negating the losses to roughly half a percent is quite good. And over the last 12 months, for instance, all four of our funds, two hedge funds and two unit trusts, have delivered between 12 and 16% returns after fees against the market's 1%. So uh, we are content with our performance. We're going to come back to those funds a bit later. But but looking at the more um, global uh, investment environment, there seems to be a lot of volatility, more than we've seen, for example, last year, which was also uh, pretty volatile. What do you foresee is going to happen in the short and medium term? So we think that the devaluation of the yuan was the first step in, in further uh, weakening of the Chinese currency that's to come as they open up the economy uh, for for international flows into China to offset a lot of the flows out of China, which is one of the reasons why they needed to devalue the yuan. And they're doing that as part of their whole movement from an infrastructure-led economy to a consumption-led economy. And while this has, has happened with a few hiccups, we do foresee that it will continue happening. And that means that Globally, uh, you'll continue probably to see deflation in commodity markets. You will continue to see a strengthening dollar as the FOMC in the next week will decide whether to raise interest rates now or only in December. And we think between the, these two countervailing forces, there should be opportunities of a stronger dollar, stronger U.S. economy 
and a weaker emerging market environment, including weaker emerging market currencies, including the yuan. But don't you think that one of the knock-on effects um, definitely is a flow of money from emerging markets back to developed markets? Uh, do you think it's being overdone at the moment? I think there could be more to come. And um, the FOMC will be the next data point to to either confirm that or then push it out for uh, three months or so. Um, but with downgrades of Brazil, for instance, uh, issues in China, a lot of emerging markets that are very linked to China because the commodities are more aligned to the exports, are more aligned to commodities than other countries. Unfortunately, it doesn't bode well for emerging markets in the short term. So while some other investors might see a reversion to the mean quite soon, I think we're taking a more cautious view in that regard. Active fund managers hate it when uh, indices uh, or you know, exchange-traded funds you know, perform better and um, show a superior performance. And one of the arguments of active managers is they can limit the downside um, during a market correction uh, such as what we are currently seeing. What do you expect uh, fund managers to do now? Do you think there will be active steps to try and preserve capital? And, and what do you think uh, would be the most common uh, strategies they would follow? I don't think there's necessarily a handful of common strategies that active managers follow. Active managers are actually quite a heterogeneous group where you have very dogmatic investors, especially in the value part of the spectrum, that really take quite dogmatic views. We are on the other end of the spectrum at 361. We are very flexible in our approach. We are not dogmatic, and we believe there's more than one way to make money. So while other active managers might say, we're going to stick this through, it will come right eventually, we are more sensitive to the downside, maybe because of our hedge fund experience, and that means we do move our portfolios around a bit more. We are true active managers when it comes to times like this. So we have, over the last 12 months, protected value. We have still given an above inflation return, while the indices that are linked, to, for instance, to the JC All Share have been flat. So it's exactly at the end of a bull market, where when markets start to turn, that the passive managers are very loud in proclaiming that they've outperformed the average active manager. But I think we're now going into the environment where a lot of active managers, not all of them, maybe not even on average, but a significant number of active managers can and have so far in the last year outperformed the indices, which is quite good for active management because in general, uh, we don't have a good name uh, relative to the passive managers, but that's the average. And the specific situation is quite a bit different than the average. But since uh, 2009, just after the financial crash, you know, we had a, a massive run on the JSE. And dare I say it, it was pretty easy for the funds to, to actually make money. You buy the big guys, Naspers, Richmond, Steinhoff. Um, and uh, now we are seeing, you know, a pullback. Do you foresee... You know, we will see some some people uh, when the tide goes out without costumes on. Yes, I, I do. It's inevitable, and I think the irony is the ones that uh, will be seen as being having swum naked are the ones that have been more dogmatic. And you can see already the the active managers that have just kept on buying commodities as they have dropped, saying that it will all come right in the end, it will revert to the mean, have not only bled in terms of performance but also in terms of asset flows. And we think that some of those businesses might be near the point where they are not viable anymore. 
And those are the ones that have given active management a, a bit of a bad name. So we're trying our best to hold up the flexible part, the less dogmatic part of the, of the asset management industry. Um, but I do think there will be some casualties, yes. When would, well, investors should look at performance as they always do and they actually scrutinize it. When do you think we would be able to see the first signs um, of which uh, active managers actually outperformed the, the, the poorer ones? I think right now that you have a 12-month period of quite rocky markets and the JC being flat over the last 12 months, now is the, the best opportunity to see that. So if you pull out your fact sheets of a number of unit trusts, you will see that difference. You will see certain managers being up 12 to 16%. You will see other managers being down in double digits. So it's exactly now that you can see, because the tide has gone out in the last 12 months, uh, who has had a, a, a nice costume on and who has been swimming naked. Uh, let's talk about the JSE. Um, the biggest, the most casualties uh, were in the commodity sector. We've seen some really big sell-offs. Do you think, uh, when do you think some of those counters would offer value? Because uh, most of the, especially the big companies, are actually very solid companies. Well, they, they are solid at a certain assumed price for the commodities that they sell. They do not have pricing power. They are therefore not high-quality companies because they are very reliant on the vagaries of rural markets and what China imports in terms of volume and therefore the price they pay in certain commodities. So we have been negative commodities for an extended period of time before, but right now I agree with you that it's been quite a severe adjustment. And where we are now, I think we are less negative, call it neutral on commodities, and therefore we have been more buying commodities and selling commodities in the most recent past. Well, if you look at the, the, the top three, Anglo, uh, BHP Billiton and Glencore, what, what are your thoughts on those and the opportunities they offer? Between those three, we think that the uh, capital raise that Glencore has announced really uh, puts to bed concerns that people had regarding the debt levels, which at one point was even more than the market cap of the company. So we think that Glencore will trade themselves out of this uh, because of um, their uh, 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 reliance, or less of a reliance on markets. Uh, and with Ivan Glazenberg at the helm, we do think that they've got a management team who is incentivized to, to trade through this. In the case of Anglo, uh, we have some concerns about their capital structure as well. And uh, the announcement between Anglo Platt and Sabanier to some extent has addressed that, but I think there's more to come. And in the case of BHP Billiton, that's probably the highest quality of those three commodity companies. And even though the exposure to iron ore and petroleum for now is a net negative, um, they say at least that they think those two commodities will turn. We are a bit more concerned about that because in a certain scenario where commodities don't recover, you won't, don't want to back a management team that has put certain strategies in place and uh, held on to a certain dividend with the expectation that it will. So we are, of the three, most bullish on bulletin in the scenario where commodity markets don't fall further. JP, I want to take you back to Black Monday where the JSC nearly fell by 3%. As a, as a fund manager, what do you do on that specific day when you see such carnage? 
I think there's no one rule that would uh, inform you what to do in all circumstances. But on that day, what we did is uh, we have an open plan office and everyone debates and everyone is involved in managing the portfolios. And some of us were more intent to sell. Seeing but, but, but were you standing behind the screen, um, you know, saying, oh, no, there's another <laughs> point. What, what actually happened? Well, I think we weren't like deers in the headlights. We weren't panicked, uh, but we had a lot of robust debate because the debate was, is this the first sign of further turmoil to come or is this an irrational sell-off that will correct itself uh, the next day? So it's only through robust debate between informed individuals, as we think our team is, that one can get to an answer. And our debate led to a situation where we did some buying, some selling, but more buying than selling on that Monday, which worked for us because on the Tuesday we had the big rebound since then. What did you actually buy on that day? Well, um, if I think back, we, we bought high-quality companies that we already had in our portfolios, and I can uh, name the banks, for instance. We think the banks offer reasonable value here, and on a relative basis, a lot more value than some other uh, uh, sectors. Uh, we bought back some commodity companies that fell sharply. Um, so, but on the other hand, we also sell, sold some, some shares as well. So we did a bit of both. Just uh, let us look at your individual funds and let's start with your equity funds. You've got two, um, but they, they hold very similar shares. Um, the, the, and I can just look at the top holdings um, of the uh, equity fund, uh, Naspers, uh, British American Tobacco, Steinoff, SAB Miller, Sassel. And, and you see the, exactly the same names uh, on the, fund sh the fact sheet of the Flexible Opportunity Fund. W what is the main difference between the two? The difference between the 361 Met Equity Fund and 361 Met Flexible Opportunity Fund has to do with the mandate. The equity fund must have 80% in equities at all times, while the flexible fund can vary its equity holding from 0 to 100%. So in the last five to six years, we have been bullish on equities, and that's why the composition and the equity proportion of these two funds have been very similar. It might be a different case going forward. So uh, one should not look at the last five years and see these two funds necessarily as being managed on the same basis. Also, the flexible fund has had some bonds in the past in its portfolio. Um, so uh, the Met Equity Fund is not allowed to have bonds, which is another difference in the mandate between the two. They seem to be quite expensive. Uh, the TER of the equity fund is just over 2% and nearly 3.5%. Um, on the opportunity fund, uh, why are they so expensive? Because we performed so well. So in that TR, we can break it down between the basic fee, which ours is at market, and the performance fee component. And because we've performed so well, our performance fee component uh, in terms of the TR is much higher than average. I'm sure that a lot of investors would prefer to pay as much a performance fee as they can if it means that even after that performance fee, they do better than the market. And that is exactly what happens. So we are unashamedly more expensive than others when we outperformed, but we would be just as cost competitive as others if we do average. And we haven't done average recently. Mm. Your hedge funds, the, the fact sheets on your hedge funds uh, differ significantly from the unit trust. Uh, you don't reveal exactly what you invest in. Why don't you uh, reveal the, the underlying holdings? There's no legal, re legal requirement currently to do that. Um, I'm sure you know that currently hedge funds are busy uh, transitioning to within the collective investment scheme universe, which would mean that going forward, hedge funds will also show their top 10 holdings on their fact sheets. But I can tell you that we have one process at 361. So the holdings of the unit trusts and the hedge funds on the long side 
look very similar. And then the only difference is that in the hedge funds, we can short. So we have certain short positions as well. But they are quite a bit smaller than the long positions because in our hedge fund and fund, we have a net equity exposure of between 50 and 75%. So we still have a lot more long positions than short positions in the hedge funds. Do you think that the current downturn would um, boost the popularity of hedge funds, which in comparison to Unitrust is really still in its infancy? It is. And I do think that firstly, the way markets are performing with heightened volatility and the way our hedge funds have performed, where our 361 hedge fund is the one that did 16% over the last year after all fees, um, shows that this is exactly the time where investors who are sensitive to the drop in the value of their investments, whether it be private client investors or pension funds and other institutional investors should have a serious look at hedge funds. And with the change in legislation, it also would give them more comfort to invest in hedge funds in a regulated environment where these hedge funds should perform better during times like this when there's heightened volatility in the market. Just lastly, what advice would you have for uh, retail investors in this volatile market? I would say that uh, try to avoid your own emotional and behavioral, uh, behavioral pitfalls. So if you're a long-term investor, don't panic. But at the same time, make sure that you've invested with an investment manager who is aligned with your interests and also will try to avoid uh, making losses because that's rule number one in investments. Don't lose money. And uh, you should invest with an investment manager that has the same But rule. people are losing money right now. Well, yes, when I say lose money, I don't mean on a monthly basis. I call it a, a rolling 12 monthly basis. Certain investment managers have done a lot better than others, and uh, that feeds from their philosophy. So go with the ones who are more sensitive to those losses that could be incurred. Thank you, JP. That was uh, JP Fister of 361.